guess as I get my, <clears throat> my stuff situated here, I figured I'll, I'll share what Tori and I were reflecting on this morning as we, as we drove in. You may not know this, but uh, this time, this same Sunday last year was the first day that we visited the church. It was before we even, you know, were hired on as, as staff, and we kind of, on our, on our drive over, trying to avoid the, the ice patches, we, uh, we're just kind of reflecting on our, our time here, the, the year that we've, we've been here. And two things really stood out to, to me particularly. I don't know if it stood out to Tori, but I imagine so. Uh, the first thing is how encouraging you guys all are to us, particularly. I know there's lots of encouragement that, that happens here. Um, so that's thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but the second thing that really stood out to, to me was how giving you all are as, as a congregation. It's just, it's wonderful to see things like the Benevolent Fund offering happen just monthly. Um, and just as another example, just, uh, just last Sunday when I made the announcements about the, the Thanksgiving feast for the youth group that, that's happening this Wednesday, just uh, the, the time it took me to get from my seat out to the, uh, out to the I guess, Information Central where we had the sign-up sheet, I was just blown away by how many names had already been signed up on the list for that. So again, thank you very much. It's such a big encouragement to me, and I know you guys probably all feel that uh, amongst each other too. So. It's been a little while since we've last looked at the, the minor prophets together. I, I believe that the, the last time that I was up here was the last weekend in August. So I think it's been, that means, I'm not good at math. I, I'm studying theology. Uh, but uh, that thing, yeah. But I think, I think that means it's been about two months since I've, we've been up here to talk about these books together. So it might be wise really quickly before we get into the, the sermon proper, the official sermon, to just quickly remind ourselves as to what these books are uh, and uh, maybe put them in a little bit of a, a timeline or a history span, too. So the Minor Prophets are the 12 little books that are found at the, the backs, the end of our Old Testament. And they're not called minor because they have less important things to say than the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, people like that. They're called minor specifically because of their length. They're, they're really short. They're, they're very short, especially the one we're going to look at today. And, and in fact, if in some of your, your Bibles, I don't know if you're familiar with the table of contents page of your Bible a whole lot, but some of your Bibles may not call these the minor prophets. They may call them something called the Book of the Twelve. And that is because major prophets, so Isaiah or Jeremiah, back when they didn't have books, when they had scrolls, a major prophet like Isaiah would, would fill up an entire scroll. It, it would take the whole thing. But a minor prophet would not. It would take a small piece. And so you could fit all 12 of these minor prophets on, on a single scroll with, with room to spare. They're, they're short. And we've looked at three of them so far. In June... We began our study on these books by, by looking at the, the text of Habakkuk. So just for the sake of, of grounding ourselves in history, I made, a, I made a timeline here so we can just, again, ground ourselves in history. And this spans from 800 B.C. to, to 400 B.C. So for you history nerds out there, around the time where the, the nation of Israel divided into two, around 800 B.C., all the way almost up to the time where the, um, through Alexander the Great, the Greeks came and started putting pressure on, on Judah there. But the first book, again, we looked at was Habakkuk, and he appears on a timeline right about there. He's a, he's a pre-exilic text. 
That means he was written before the Babylonians took Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, into captivity for that 70-year period, Habakkuk. He prophesied about the terror and the destruction that the, the Babylonians would inflict, but that event actually hadn't happened in, in his lifetime yet. Uh, but the second book we, we looked at, if you remember, was the fun little book of, of Nahum. And Nahum, chronologically, actually came before Habakkuk. His message wasn't concerned about the, the Babylonian nation, but he was more concerned with the, the Assyrian people. And that prophet, Nahum, he gave comfort to God's people by telling them that the, the Lord does listen and the Lord will come and judge the wicked. But, but Jonah, he actually appears even before that on the timeline. For some reason, we decided to go backwards in history as we went through these. And, and Jonah was right around the 850 B.C. mark, so a little bit after the uh, Israel, the southern and the northern kingdom split up into two. And um, just for the sake of continuity, just for the sake of, of throwing this out there, Steve has been working up to a book in his sermon series, the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah actually appears on the timeline that we have right about here. Jeremiah is a prophet who spoke both before the exile and, and after the exile, and he was not too far after the time of Habakkuk. However, the book we're going to be looking at this morning is situated in, in a much later time period within Israel's history than the ones that we have looked at so far. Haggai happens after the exile. The 70 years of, of torments under the Babylonian rule are, are over. God has finally led his, his people home. And, and in knowing that, we should expect to see in this book, we should expect to see great fanfare and celebration. The, the thing that the people have been longing for, the thing that the prophets have been crying out for, has finally happened. But that's not the tone of the book of Haggai at all. Instead of fanfare, we, we find frustration. Instead of celebration, we see setback and, and sadness and, and discontent. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just pause for a moment and, and turn to our Lord with a word of prayer. Bow with me, if you will. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your, your mercy and the love you poured out for us on the cross. Thank you that even when life seems hopeless, you promise that you are still right there next to us. And even though we don't deserve it, God, you, you've promised all who believe a wonderful future with you and your kingdom. We are so grateful. Lord, don't allow me to speak my own words, but only yours. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we, we pray all of this. Amen. When was the last time that you felt disappointed? Maybe it was because of a maybe it was because of a small thing. Maybe last uh, last Sunday, for example, during coffee and cookie time, you went out and saw a, a really wonderful looking blueberry donut from Marge's, and you bit into it, only to discover that there was raisins in it instead. <laughs> maybe you went to the the movie theater last week and and spent some, some good money to watch a movie only to be disappointed and, and kind of bored by it. 
Or, or maybe you woke up yesterday morning and looked outside at your yard and said, what is all this white stuff, right? Uh, but it could be a, a little bit bigger than that, too. Maybe you received a, a phone call informing you that your, your kids or your grandkids won't be able to make it to Thanksgiving this year. Maybe you didn't get that raise at, at work like you should have, or the clean bill of health you expected to get from the doctor's office didn't come back as, as clean as you thought it should be. Or your disappointment might even be deeper than, than, than that. Maybe you've got something that's just been following you along, following you around for your, your entire life, something that's just haunting you to your very core, a disappointment that runs very deep. But whatever that might be for you, whatever the disappointment you've had to face in life is, is big or small, what I want you to try to do in this moment is just try to remember how it feels for you or how that felt for you as we set the stage for what is happening in the book of, of Haggai. Now, I'm not going to, uh, I'm only going to really read a small piece of this, but the, the events that lead up to Haggai's prophecy are actually not found in the book of Haggai themselves, or itself. They're found in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 3. And so I'm going to summarize the first three chapters of this, but if you are so inclined, turn to the book of Ezra, and you can follow along with me. But picture this scene. Israel has been in exile for about 70 years. They saw their former cities burned to the ground and their houses ransacked by the Babylonians and the Edomites. They watched as their entire livelihood was, was stripped from them as they were forced to, to move from their homeland and, and sent all the way into, into towns that were, were not their own. And more than this, though, and something that many Israelites probably thought was impossible, something they didn't believe could ever, ever happen, the people saw their temple ransacked and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his men. The Babylonians, they, they first came and they broke down the walls of the city of Jerusalem and they took torches and lit ablaze the temple and the royal palace. And they also even came in and they, they stole the priestly vessels of gold and silver and took it all as, as loot. But now God has led his people back home. The Babylonians have been overthrown by the nation of Persia. Persia. King Cyrus and, and Darius were, were much more tolerant kings than, than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. And, and the Persians even returned to the people of Israel their stolen temple vessels and as well as enough money to rebuild what they had lost in Jerusalem. And in Israel, they literally had their hands filled with gold and their hearts filled with, with hope. And as we see, if you're following along in Ezra, as we see God's, God's people, they get right to work bubbling over with excitement and, and just really overjoyed to be back in their homeland, they begin to rebuild the temple of God, starting first with the foundation and, and then the altar. And, and once they have this foundation almost completely laid out, they actually bring out some, some priests all dressed up in holy vestments along with cymbals and, and trumpets, and they begin to sing songs of praise to God, thanking him for delivering them out of exile and allowing them to rebuild. How exciting, right? Well, let's take a look at what uh, the people's response really was. This is the very ending of Ezra 3, 11 through 13. It says, And they sang responsively, talking about the nation of Israel, uh, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, singing, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So can you feel, can you feel the disappointment in that text? Just let it sink in for just a minute here. Can you feel the disappointment in this text? Some of the, some of the younger folk thought this temple was, was great. But those who remember the glory of the past, they, they begin to weep with a loud voice. The splendor of the old days was gone. The might of Solomon's temple was, was no more. In the, in the promising future they had all been dreaming about in the land while in exile, it wasn't happening quite like they thought it, it should be. And in fact, just about nothing was happening quite as they thought it should be. Enter, enter the prophet Haggai. And this was a man sent by the Lord to speak words of encouragement. He, he appeared on the scene about 16 years after the events of Ezra chapter 3, but, but it's clear that the people are, are still in a, in a no better situation than they were in Ezra's day. And so let's listen, or allow me to read the first couple of verses from Ezra, or Haggai chapter 1, and we will go from there. They say this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag uh, with holes. If you're, a, if you're a note taker, this leads us to the first point in our notes this morning, which says, Haggai exhorts the disappointed Israelites, to rebuild the temple. So like I mentioned a moment ago, about 16 years has passed since the nation of, of Israel returned to Jerusalem and began the, the temple rebuilding process. But it seems like they haven't gotten very far in those, in those 16 years. We know from Ezra that a group of Samaritans from the north rose up and began to... Uh, I guess, try to halt their construction efforts for a bit, but the guy named Nehemiah, he, he, stopped, that, uh, he stopped that issue. What, what really seems to be the problem, according to Haggai, according to the verses that we just read, was, was apathy brought forth by the people's disappointments. They had stopped caring about what they thought was once important. They knew the Torah law, they knew that God required of them to have a proper working temple system put in place so they could sacrifice and, and worship the Lord in an appropriate way. And the temple was also a symbol and a reminder of the Lord's manifest presence among his people. That was a really, really big deal. 
but discouragement is, is often a heavy deterrent for doing the right thing. And it, and it seems like the, the nation let that get the best of them. That is, rather than spending their time and their effort to rebuild the temple, God's house, they decided to fix their own houses instead. And it should probably be mentioned that there wasn't really anything wrong with the Israelites wanting to rebuild their own houses in a certain sense. They, they needed a place to live, right? Uh, they had been living as hostages in a foreign country for 70 years, and it was nice, probably nice to finally have a place all their own. Uh, I, I know I would, would love that. The, the problem, though, was they went just above and beyond the status quo when it came to remodeling. As Haggai 1.4 pointed out, the, some of the Israelites, they were now living in houses with, with paneling. And that is, that is not to say that some Israelites went out to their local Lowe's and picked up some nicely colored composite siding to, to then slap on to their, their plastered stone walls over a long weekend or something. Uh, no, we need to remember that much of the land in Israel is, is actually desert. There, there aren't really trees that grow large enough trunks to cut into wood paneling there. You would have to cut a bunch of really skinny trees, and that wouldn't make any sense. Um, the people would have had to really, they would have had to import some cedar from the country of, of Lebanon, and that would not have been cheap at all. It doesn't say in the text, but as I was kind of reading and reflecting on it this, uh, this past week, um, I kind of suspect that they probably would have had to use some of that gold and silver given to them by Persia um, to rebuild their temple. They, should have, they probably used some of that money to fix up their, their own houses. Their priorities had become very much misguided. And Haggai, he calls them out for this. And in doing so, he points them to a reality that they, for some reason, have seemed to have been overlooking. While they were busy building up their own homes, God was busy frustrating their, their efforts. The, the sixth month was a, as a, was a month of grape and fig and pomegranate harvest. But even though the people so greatly, they were not bringing in as, as much fruit as they expected. And the people who were working to earn a wage were doing so like a man who puts his money in a bag with holes. Uh, in other words, Despite their best efforts, they just could not get ahead. No matter how much they saved, they just did not have enough money. But why was this happening? Well, as, as Haggai points out in the rest of, of chapter 1, the section we didn't read, God was trying to get their attention. He was intentionally hindering their work, their, their finances and their well-being so they would get back on track with what he called them to do. And in Haggai's prophecy, it does not meet deaf ears. After the, after the prophet's initial message here, the remnant of Israel, they, they band together and they listen to his words and they realize their mistake. They had begun blinded by the past and they began to, to operate in a way that ran contrary to what God wanted for them. They were attempting to make their, their own life work on their own terms, but as 1.12 tells us, some of the prominent leaders of Israel, including Zerubbabel the governor and, and Joshua the high priest, they, they come and they publicly repent and they promise to get back on track rebuilding the temple of the Lord. 
But that's not where the book of Haggai stops, unfortunately. So let's, let's see what happens next. This is Haggai 2, 1 through 9. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the, the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory in this house shall be greater greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. So this then leads us to the next points in in the bulletin notes, which reads, Haggai comes and encourages the people to remain faithful and reminds them of the promise of future blessing. About a month has passed since Haggai's last message found in in chapter 1. And once again, the prophet has received a word from the Lord to give to the remnant of, of Israel, and the context of this message seems about the, the same as the last. Even though the people have promised to rebuild the temple, they are still stuck playing this comparison game. The Israelites who were old enough to remember the glory of Solomon's temple were frustrated. They, they knew what it was like in, in, this olden, in the olden times, and this, this new building was just not really living up to their expectations. In fact, Solomon's temple was, was very, very elaborate. I don't uh, continue on here. It was, it was about 20 stories high at the highest point, so the very peak of it there. And, and the building itself was, was made out of polished stone, but it was, as we can see in the, in the picture, it was overlaid with, with gold, and it also had some large cedar panels on it, but that's, that's really just the outside of the building. The inside contained the, the Ark of the Covenants, it had the sacred fire. It had the ornate original table of showbread. It had, uh, it had the original ephod of the high priest as worn by Aaron. And it even had the molten sea. And if you don't know what that is, the molten sea is that goofy thing that has all the cows there. With the water. It's a giant water basin made completely out of, out of bronze. It was, it was huge. And it was, a really a, it was really a sight to behold. But the second temple... In, in Haggai's day, it didn't look quite as extravagant. It looks a little plain, right? At least in this picture. So sure, when it was, when it was rebuilt completely, after the days of, of Haggai's message, it, it was similar in size to, to Solomon's, but it definitely was not as fancy. It did not have gold adorned walls. It only had stone. It did not have the Ark of the Covenant, as that was lost. And the second temple, this one here, it, it did have some golden candlesticks and, and stuff like that, but nothing in comparison to the treasures of, of David's. And in Solomon's day, it didn't even come close. Although, 
according to Haggai, none of that really should matter. The Israelites, they needed to stop playing their comparison games because God himself was, was still with them. And in fact, in just a little while, God was going to do something very great. He was going to shake the heavens and the earth. And then the, and the treasures of all the nations were going to come and fill this new temple. And in, and in that day, even Solomon's temple will seem boring in comparison. As, as, as promised in Haggai 2.9, the latter days of this new temple will be even greater than, than the former. But, but Haggai's prophecy, actually, it doesn't even stop at that. He goes on to tell people in 2.10 through 19, the section we did not read, that God is going to lift the curse he put on the land uh, brought about by the people's misplaced priorities. Their, their neglect of, of God's house had brought about famine and financial trouble, remember? But, but now that they have gotten back to work, the Lord promised to, to bless them like he, he once did. And the prop, he even continues on from there. The, the prophet makes mention in 20 through 23 that, that God has plans to use Zerubbabel, the guy with a fun name, he plans to use Zerubbabel as his divine signet ring. In other words, through Zerubbabel, the Lord is going to come and bring about justice. According to Haggai, through this governor, through Zerubbabel, the Lord was going to destroy chariots, overthrow kingdoms, and usher in his peaceful rule over the entirety of creation itself. And as weird as that sounds, as crazy as some of those things sound, I was talking with, with John Kopp about this this past Wednesday. As crazy as some of the language in Haggai sounds, it came true. Think about it. The famine, it did stop. The people did regain the ability to save money. They didn't have to put their earnings in a bag with holes any longer. Uh, all of that nonsense, it, it finally came to an end. But, but it's more than that, actually. About 50 or so years before Christ, a guy maybe some of us may be familiar with, but, but a guy named King Herod the Great came onto the scene. And he decided to make major revisions to, to the Second Temple by, by building it up twice as big as, as this one, and filling it with all kinds of gold and silver from all over the world. Herod's temple was, was bigger and it was fancier than even Solomon's was. It was, it was massive. And thinking about Haggai's prophecy, that, that's pretty cool in relation to it, right? But, but Haggai's talk about the, the glory and the earth-shaking stuff, it didn't, it didn't actually come true exactly as the people expected it to. And so that's, that's important to note. It seems as if God was purposely doing something in their time that they, they really couldn't even have imagined uh, even possible. They were busy looking to the past and, and playing comparison games and, and consequently missing out on, on God working in their midst in a new way because Zerubbabel didn't act as God's signet ring. A descendant of his did. <laughs> Zerubbabel is one of the names mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus as recorded for us in, in Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. And, and when Jesus arrives, he declares all this temple business irrelevant. In, in John 4, Christ explains that there will be a day when, when people wouldn't worship on, on this mountain or, or, or that, but by God's Spirit, all people would be able to freely worship the Lord anywhere. And, 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 and through Christ's death on the cross, that reality was, was made possible. In fact, and this is kind of cool, but... In that moment, in, in the crucifixion moment, 
the glory of God literally shook the heavens and the earth. As, as Matthew 27, 51 tells us, the temple curtain in, in that moment, the temple curtain itself was ripped in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that now through the Spirit, anyone who believes in Jesus as Lord can worship him as, as Savior. And someday soon, like Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 talks about, this Jesus will return and he will come and he will shake the heavens and the earth once more, bring about his kingdom in his fullness, and begin his everlasting reign of peace and love. The, the Israelites in Haggai's day had, had misplaced priorities brought about by their disappointment. They were playing comparison games brought forth by their, their discouragement, but God's prophet was calling them to look way past all of that, because in the future the Lord was going to do something so great that nothing in their present time could ever compare. But the question is, <laughs> what then does the book of Haggai have to do with, with us today? We don't have a temple. It was destroyed in eighty seventy by the Romans, and it was never rebuilt again. And from our perspective, Jesus showed up on the scene about 2,000 years in the past. He's now at the, at the right hand of the Father. So, so how can, can Haggai ever be helpful to, to us here today in, in, in the present, right? Well, I, I think there's a few different ways that it, that it can be. Yes, it is situated in a specific time in history uh, that seems kind of irrelevant from our vantage point, but, but the ethic that it teaches, it transcends time. God can use the prophets here way back then to speak to us even now. And here's what I mean by this. And so one thing we can learn from, from Haggai is we need to let go of the demand to make our life work on our own terms. I'll say it again. We need to let go of the demand to make our life work on our own terms. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I know that name gets, gets tossed around here from, from time to time, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian. He was part of the Confessing Church during World War II. And he, he wrote a book called Life Together, way back in 1939 or something like that. And, and it's a book that explores what it means for, for Christians to live in community with, with one another. Because that uh, was really, really important to do for the German church as they were wrestling uh, with being under Nazi control. The, the country of Germany obviously was under Nazi control in, in World War II. And, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wanted to remind the church that, hey, as a Christian community, instead of being characterized by hatred and division, we need to instead be characterized by, by love and in harmony. And it's, it's worth a read if you've never read it before. I, I own the book, and if you want to borrow it, I'd, I'd love to, to lend it to you. But I don't uh, mean to just plug a book up here. That's, that's not my point. I have a specific thing I want to say with this, because there's a chapter that is really important, I think, in that book in relation to the book of, of Haggai. Because in there, Bonhoeffer, he talks about a concept called a wish dream. And basically, a, a wish dream is something that you, you hold on to so tightly that you then become blinded to the reality that God wants you to live in, in in the present. It's something that you just hold on to so tightly you just can't see past it. Or to, uh, to just to quote the book directly, and I realize it's kind of small, so I'll read it for you too. This is, this is what Bonhoeffer says about this subject. Innumerable times 
A whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. With that being said, he who loves his dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of, of the latter. And in other words, he or she who loves their own idea of what church should look like more than the church itself is in, is in serious trouble. And, and that's not to say that change should not happen or that things should not stay the same from time to time. But, but again, it, it's sometimes the case that holding onto an idea of something so tightly can suffocate the reality that, that God wants us to embrace in, in the present. And that was definitely true in, in Haggai's day, right? The, the Israelites, they were, they were holding on fast to an idea that God was quickly changing, something that he was retiring. They wanted a, a bigger and better temple than what they had. And they got, they got pretty upset when they didn't get it, so much so that their priorities went all out of whack and they began fixing up their own homes instead of uh, the Lord's temple. And, and playing those types of comparison games are, are dangerous even today because we can find ourselves making similar kinds of mistakes to that which the Israelites did. Our churches, or other churches, have cool programs and other churches have slick, put-together events. We do too. I, I really do think that. But sometimes when we compare ourselves, not for the sake of, of learning from other people, we can intentionally begin to harbor jealousy. But, but the same goes for eloquent speaking pastors and the size of our, our building and, and all kinds of stuff that we might accidentally find ourselves playing the comparison game with from, from time to time. All of those things are great, but none of those things are vital to the success of God's gospel going forth into the world. And I think there's actually even another layer in all of this as well. When it, when it comes to how we understand the church, when it comes to how we understand the, the Christian community, sometimes, sometimes nostalgia can be a really dangerous thing too. Not always, but nostalgia can invite us to revel in past accomplishments and, and make us lament the seeming monotony of, of the present. Haggai did not argue with the Israelites when they claimed that Solomon's temple was a lot better than Zerubbabel's, because it was. But, but he did point out that the glory of God was still with them then and there in, in the present, translated to, to our time. All of our lives and, and all of our work for the Lord cannot be bold new adventures or, or daring new conquests or things like that. They can be, however, lived to the glory of God even when things seem a little bit stagnant, because that might be even when living for the kingdom is the most important. But, but even above the, the church level, I think that these same principles that Haggai points out to you know, here can be uh, applied to our everyday personal lives, too. It's easy for us all individually to remember the past and think that our present just doesn't compare. And again, that really might be true. But God may still be doing something in our present that he doesn't want us to, to miss out on. Holding too, too tightly to the glory days of last year might blind us to the working of the Spirit in, in this year. In comparison games, they're a big deal on, on a personal level too, right? Someone else's spouse or, or jobs or kids or family or, or life situation, those things might seem a lot better than ours. But that's what God has blessed them with. 
He wants to do something different with us. In fact, when we grasp at this type of stuff, when we demand our life to work on our own terms, we subtly deny the true Lord of our life the access to, to do the work he wants to do in us and through us. In other words, God knows best, and he's calling us to follow where he is, is leading. And this then brings us to the last point this morning that I'd like to make, and we'll end on this. Even if we are discouraged with our present circumstances, we can still be confident in our future with the Lord. The reality is, even when we let go of the demand to make our life work in our own terms, we might still face disappointment. Israel, they, they really did. They got their priorities straightened up, but their discouragement, it, it still remained. Sometime between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Haggai, the remnant of, of the nation began to rebuild the temple. Their, their leaders made that public declaration to the Lord, and they chose to work on God's house instead of their own house. But Haggai still came and still felt the need to give words of encouragement to the people even after they began to do that. And he encouraged them in two very specific ways. He first pointed out that even within this time of serious discouragement, God was still in their midst. He was right there. He, he did not leave them. And then secondly, Haggai reminded them that God still had a future for them. The Lord was, was truly going to one day shake the heavens and the earth, and, and one day he really was going to bring about his peace and, and reign of, of love through the coming Messiah. And I think, I think there's something that we ourselves, all of us, can, can learn through that too. Because first, as Haggai points out, disappointments or discouragement in our life is, is not a sign that God has abandoned us. Often it's, it's exactly the opposite. It might be that God is attempting to remind us that nothing else but him will truly satisfy us. Everything in this life will ultimately disappoint us in one way or another except for Jesus himself. And secondly, even in the midst of serious letdown, we can still press on confidently because of the promise of eternal life with our Lord. Everyone who claims Jesus as their Savior will one day live in his kingdom in love, of love and peace because Christ's atoning work on the cross. God made it possible for all of us to have a better future no matter our circumstances in the present, our disappointments, our discouragements, and our defeats in life. It, it might be serious, but it will not ever compare to the glory of what's to come for those of us who believe. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the prophet Haggai. His words of encouragement to your remnant all those years ago are still very encouraging to us here and now. We thank you for not leaving us, for sticking with us even in our sin and offering us a way to you through Jesus. Lord, we, we fearfully look forward to the day where you will once again shake the heavens and the earth. And we pray that while we wait, you would continue to encourage us to be faithful to what you've called us to. Thank you again for sending your son to die in our place. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, God knows best. Amen? And I think at this time, 
He's actually leading us to some cookies and some donuts and some coffee back there. And so thank you all for coming today. You're dismissed. <laughs>